Hello, and welcome to this EHIV Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Our guest today is Dr. Allison Agu, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Adult Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And we're here to follow up on a recent EHIV Review newsletter issue about improving outcomes in at-risk populations. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include addressing the specific barriers to testing and entering into care among transgender individuals, migrant and immigrant populations, and among adolescents. Dr. Agu has disclosed that she has served on an expert advisory board for Gilead Sciences Incorporated. She has also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Agu, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here talking with you today. As you noted in your newsletter issue, Doctor, while overall HIV incidence has remained stable, it's increased in certain populations, specifically transgender individuals, MSM, and adolescents and young adults, and other populations, like people who inject drugs and immigrants, have shown an increased risk of HIV acquisition. What I'd like to focus on today, Dr. Agu, is how to translate the research findings reported in your newsletter into clinical practice. So start us off, if you would, please, with a patient scenario. Sure. You are on your way to see your next patient, a 22-year-old named Mike, who is here for a routine physical examination. You've seen him once previously for a job physical about two years ago. When you walk in the room, a visibly upset young woman introduces herself as Malia and identifies preferred pronouns of she, hers, and explains that the receptionist at the front desk repeatedly called her Mike despite being corrected. During the course of the interview, you apologize to Malia for what has happened and assure her that you will address the issues she has raised with the staff. You proceed to conduct the medical history and interview and make a plan for addressing recommended STI and HIV screening. So, Mike, Malia, does it really matter? I I guess my question is, was it really that important for the provider to apologize and to address the use of the patient's legal name by the staff member? Absolutely. So clearly, this young woman has gone through a physical transformation since the last time you've seen her, but she's also gone through multiple levels of transformation, and it's very important for not just the physician or the provider, but the entire clinical staff to actually respect that young woman's presentation in that clinic. You know, the staff member's insistence on using the legal name, which is Mike, which clearly disconnects from how she presents, was stigmatizing to the patient. And we do know that stigma itself is associated with poor engagement. And so it's important to not just apologize, but to then address stigma by education with the members of the medical team, as well as to assure that we have practices and procedures that are not unintentionally stigmatizing to a population. A very important point. Thank you, doctor. Now, I'm going to assume that you'll be taking a sexual history of this transgender patient. What are the most important things for the clinician to be aware of? So, I think taking a very normative history, and what I mean by that is asking questions and not making assumptions is very important. It is also important to use the correct terminology to address sexual behaviors, as using the wrong terminology can, again, be stigmatizing and off-putting to individuals. And an an accurate sexual history then allows appropriate determination of which sites you need to screen for STIs and how to counsel on prevention. Correct terminology to address sexual behaviors. What does that mean? Could you give us some examples? 
Certainly. And what I mean by that is I don't mean for providers to go and get a whole crash course on street terms for sexual acts, but some that are important to know because they then allow an individual to feel comfortable in then expressing that act. An example would be using a very medical term like insertive anal intercourse, which may be very off-putting for an individual. And you could simply say, are you a top or a bottom, what have you, which would be acceptable terminology that's not stigmatizing and that would allow you and the patient to know exactly what you're talking about. There are some really great resources for providers through some sexual history sites that are referenced in the newsletter that can provide a good resource for providers if they want to understand some of the appropriate ways to refer to certain sexual acts that may not be, again, stigmatizing and off-putting. What about HIV testing? Would you recommend it at this visit? Absolutely. As we know, you know, risk of unidentified HIV infection is high among transgender individuals, particularly young trans females, for a multitude of reasons. And there is risk that she may not return. We've already talked about how the visit at this point had been very stigmatizing with the interaction with the staff. And so it's possible she may not come back to the clinic. And so this is an opportunity to provide testing. We know she's at higher risk being a trans individual, so definitely would recommend screening. Additionally, Routine universal HIV testing is required or recommended being just by her age and her risk. And additionally, again, every visit is an opportunity to test as well as to educate about risk. So for all those reasons, I would absolutely recommend HIV testing at this visit. Are there other recommendations you would make to this patient? Certainly. She should also be counseled about risk reduction tailored to her identified risk for your sexual history. Again, we talked about not making assumptions, but knowing or asking what acts and what behavior she does engage in, because then you can appropriately talk to her about, well, how could she reduce her risk? There's also a need to plan for a follow-up of her results, whether she's positive or negative, and counseling her whether she's positive or negative, how to proceed. There's an opportunity to offer pre-exposure prophylaxis. Should she need it based on what you determine on risk, it should be her need for PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis should be assessed and she should be offered. There may be an opportunity to talk about post-exposure prophylaxis if you discover during your interview with her that there are challenges. But I think beyond that, there's also planning for just routine engagement in care, including trans-specific care. As we know, the trans-affirmative care, meaning that acknowledging the needs of an individual who identifies as trans and making sure you provide health care that's related to that is also known to reduce stigma and ultimately reduce risk. And so I think for all those reasons, it's not just HIV testing and move on, but it's a comprehensive approach to this young woman that would be important. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Allison Hagu from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. You've been listening to EHIV Review, a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. In each issue, an expert author reviews the current literature in an area of specific importance to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. In the month following each newsletter, the expert author provides a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you're listening to now, to help translate that new information into clinical practice. These podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Subscription to EHIV Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. For more information about this educational activity, to subscribe and receive EHIV Review newsletters and podcasts without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, 
www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Allison Agu, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Adult Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine about the clinical aspects of improving outcomes in at-risk populations. So let's continue, uh, if you would please, doctor, with another patient scenario. Certainly. You are in an urgent care clinic and a 28-year-old woman comes to see you with abdominal discomfort. She reports that the pain, which is increasing in intensity, has been ongoing for about one week and has also noticed some vaginal discharge. She's just coming in to see you as she's not been able to get off of work. The interview is difficult as she's Spanish-speaking with limited English, and you happen to speak some, but not great Spanish. In terms of past medical history, she has none. Social history, you're able to decipher she's been in the U.S. for about one year, She's married and joined her significant other who has been in the U.S. for about three years. On physical exam, you notice diffuse abdominal pain, vaginal discharge. Additionally, you recognize that she has what appears to be track marks on her arm. Can we assume, at least for the sake of our discussion, that this patient might be a new immigrant, possibly an undocumented immigrant? Yes, that would be fair to say. Prioritize, if you would, your specific concerns about this patient. In thinking about this patient, first and foremost, with her abdominal pain, I'm thinking, is there a sexually transmitted infection that I need to be worried about with the discharge? Is there a pregnancy, potentially an ectopic pregnancy, for example, or a pregnancy that's in the tube? Additionally, I'm thinking about HIV. Those are things in terms of medical issues. There is the concern for, I'm noticing track marks. So is this someone who has a problem with injection drugs? I know that if I'm thinking about injection drug users as well as immigrant populations, we know there are decreased rates of HIV testing. There's challenges with engaging both immigrant populations as well as injection drug users. And so there are several things intersecting here in this one individual that raised my concern. So how do you facilitate dealing with everything you just talked about? I think first there's a language issue, and while the provider in this scenario speaks some Spanish, it's important to have clear communication. So it's trying to make sure you have the right language interpretation or translation to assure that you can appropriately address the young woman's questions as well as to ask the right questions to get the right answers. So trying to bridge the language gap will be important. We've also seen decreased acceptability of HIV testing when it stands alone. So bundling the HIV test with the STI test and the pregnancy test all together would be important. And then making sure the several risks we've identified, so she's an undocumented individual, she likely has an issue with injection drug use, so making sure we're referring to the appropriate services for her to not just address what's going on acutely, but to provide ongoing support moving forward for this young woman. Would you test this woman for HIV? Absolutely. This young woman with two risk factors that we know of, we have the track mark, so let's go with injection drug use first. So we know that when injection drug users are diagnosed, a significant number of them have been seen in medical care of some sort in the year prior, and only about half of them actually have had HIV testing. So this would be a missed opportunity if we did not test her. You then add the layer of her being likely an undocumented immigrant who they oftentimes are less likely to present for care because they're concerned about their legal status and concerned that they would be then, quote-unquote, reported to law enforcement. So they then also don't present, and they're less likely to be tested. So again, another missed opportunity if we don't test this young woman who comes into clinic with those two known risk factors, and additionally, there's concern from the STI, and where you have STIs, you have an increased risk of HIV. So absolutely. I think additionally, we've talked about challenges in terms of falling 
going up, et cetera. So we don't know if we're going to get another opportunity to test her. And so making sure while she's in our presence testing her and referring her to appropriate resources or finding a way to make sure that we can then have contact with her in the future. Additionally, this young woman is 28. And when we look at younger injection drug users and individuals who more recently started using have higher risk-taking behaviors. So her risk for HIV may also be increasing. So it's an opportunity to test and diagnose, but also potentially to provide some interventions to decrease her risk of acquiring HIV in the future if she's not positive today. So to achieve that risk reduction, what things might you suggest for this patient? So for this young woman, we know that syringe exchange programs work, and so trying to get her to a syringe exchange program would be important. Of course, the primary thing would be to try to get her to stop injecting drugs, but if it's not, while we're continuing to do that, if she has to inject, to try to inject safely would be important. Condoms to try to prevent acquisition of HIV and other STIs would be important. Pre-exposure prophylaxis has been shown to work for individuals who inject drugs as well as engaging in high-risk sex behaviors would be important. But I think all around it's a complete package of reduced risk, access to care, access to syringe exchange in a way that is culturally appropriate with language that she can understand to improve the likelihood that she's going to return. Let's assume, again for the sake of our discussion, that you test her, she tests positive for HIV, and she does return to your clinic. What specific challenges do you face then? There's access. This young woman already said the reason she hadn't presented was because she was working. And so you have her having other conflicting interests or the need to survive by working that decreased her chance to get there. So the transportation, actual ability to have time to come off. We talked about the issues of her being undocumented and not necessarily having access to insurance or the things that may be needed. These are not insurmountable, but they certainly increase her risk for falling out of care. In terms of retention, we know that undocumented populations oftentimes are highly mobile. And so we can get her in care. That's great. But can we keep her in care? And what do we need to do? And how creative do we need to be to continue to maintain her in care? Language is certainly a challenge. And so, again, appropriate services and appropriate language and culturally appropriate services would be important. And then trying to address her barriers. So what are her issues? Is it language? Is it insurance? What are they? And to try to then address those barriers through social work to then decrease the likelihood that she's going to fall out of care. Thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Agu. I think we've got time for one more patient scenario, so uh, if you would, please. Certainly. You are seeing a 17-year-old that you have seen in your practice since he was an infant. As usual, his mother has accompanied him to the appointment. You conduct a history and have informed the mother that you would like to have some time alone with the adolescent. The mother agrees to leave, but then says to the provider, we will talk about what happened, right? That's a difficult situation. How would you handle it? Yes, this is challenging because particularly as a young individual who has been seen at the practice since infancy, there's a level of comfort of the mother being involved. And there is this challenge where parents have to then be separated from the adolescent as the adolescent has to feel confident that they can share what's going on with them without it being shared to their parent. I think in this case, it's important to establish very early on. I oftentimes in my own practice do this as of 10, 11 years old, I start to give the adolescent time by themselves without the parent. I say, well, now little Johnny or Susan or what have you, I'm going to talk to them alone. 
And what we talk about is our issues in our business, unless there's something that's going to be harmful. And I'm very clear about what the guidelines are that I would have to break the confidentiality. Now, and this is by law, adolescents are allowed to talk with their providers without the parent involved, without sharing what happens in that encounter, unless there is something, again, that has to do with risk, whether adolescent is going to hurt themselves or somebody else, um, they're by law or allowed to have that interaction on their own. So in this scenario, I'd handle adolescent confidentiality and talk about the importance of having adolescents have their space so that they can share things that they then don't feel automatically go back to the parent. I think in that same vein, talking about adolescent risk, adolescents are less likely to report risk behaviors, sexual behaviors, what have you, if parents are involved. And so with the parent involved, I know automatically that's going to decrease that likelihood. So in this case, I really advocate for the adolescent and talk about the importance of having them to have their own time and assure the parents if there's something really concerning. And when I say concerning, again, harmful, you know, suicidality or what have you, but assure the adolescent and the parent that this is a confidential encounter. And that's just the way it's done at this practice. Make it very normative. So just for clarification, let's say the adolescent patient is sexually active. That's something you are not required to report to the parent. Is that correct? That is correct. No, I'm not required to report. And I think it's important to, as you talk to young people, to get a gauge of what they are comfortable with sharing and not comfortable with sharing, what they have shared with their parents versus not. Disclosure is a good thing in terms of fostering parent-child relationships, et cetera. However, there are times, particularly if kids are LGBTQ or they are exploring their sexual identity, they may not be accepted by their parents and breaching that confidentiality would be harmful. So absolutely, I'm not required to tell the parent. I would encourage the patient to actually share, but if they're not ready to, then that's where we are. There's confidentiality of what they've told me and how I handle that interaction with that adolescent may actually shape how they handle future interactions with providers. So there's a lot of responsibility on the provider, but it really is an opportunity to develop healthy interactions between patients and their providers moving forward. So uh, again, for the purposes of our discussion, what did this 17-year-old reveal about his sex life? In talking with this young man, he did reveal that he had been sexually active and he had engaged in sexual activity with both males and females. That's a valuable piece of information. Would that prompt you to test this adolescent for STIs and HIV? So absolutely. I mean, I think even without that information, the fact that the kid is between the age of 13 and 64, he meets the guidelines for HIV testing by the CDC anyway. So that's important. Now, the fact that he does reveal he's sexually active then increases the importance of testing. Now, asking him about what sites he's engaged in sexual activity is important because then you would be testing not just penile, but also maybe anal, maybe oral. You're checking multiple sites for STIs and you're testing for HIV. And again, this is all confidentially. You're testing this adolescent, particularly if he has not disclosed activity to the mother. STI and HIV testing without parental consent. Is it legal? Adolescents anywhere in the U.S. are able to access STI testing and treatment without parental consent. Now, HIV testing, there are a few states that have some different laws. So I do encourage the providers to make sure they know what their local guidance is in terms of what their reporting requirements are. And your suggestions for risk reduction for this patient. 
So I think, you know, a very important is uh, education, particularly if this young man has just started to develop his sexual identity. It's important to establish healthy sexual identity exploration. So talking about risk reduction, negotiation in terms of condoms, et cetera, very important because he may not get that from anywhere reputable. <laughs> he may be on Google or what have you looking, but here's an opportunity for his provider to provide that information to him. What about PrEP? PrEP currently is licensed for individuals 18 and over. The FDA or the Food and Drug Administration is actually currently reviewing the application for 15 to 17-year-olds. The young man is 17, so not yet, but making sure that he's aware that that's a resource that will be available to him in the future as he turns 18. Additionally, identifying if there's a need for post-exposure prophylaxis if he had a particularly high-risk encounter. Post-exposure prophylaxis is available regardless of the age, depending on what risk behavior or what happened in terms of an exposure. So overall with this adolescent, your task is? Making sure that this young individual has, one, an understanding that sexual exploration is healthy. However, risk reduction is also important and pointing to him to additional resources including yourself. This is an opportunity as your provider, how you handle this first foray into a sexual activity and understanding where he's coming from, you then making it normative, et cetera, become a resource that he then seeks back out to in the future to provide correct and appropriate information to reduce risk in the future. Thank you for today's cases and discussion, doctor. Uh, One more question, if you don't mind. In your opinion, what's needed as the research continues to help clinicians provide better care for these at-risk populations? We continuously struggle with how to best reach at-risk populations. And certainly, I think it's an area that we have to continue to explore. And when we are able to reach those populations, how do we assure that we employ new modalities to prevent new infections in those populations? How do we maintain vigilance and screening? You know, how do we best educate providers that are encountering patients so they're thinking about HIV risk and thinking about testing and thinking about how they can then reduce risk? I think certainly it's what is best needed in a package to reach populations, maintain contact with high-risk populations, and then ultimately reduce risk is important. And it varies by the population, right, to what's most important. So I think that's, if I had to think about what's needed for how we continue to address at-risk populations, that would be it. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Agu. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, addressing the specific barriers to testing and entering into care among transgender individuals. So I think in terms of this population, it's certainly important to reduce and minimize stigma. I think that's probably the number one thing that we need to do because if we have a stigmatizing environment, we won't be able to have these young people come in and trans individuals come in. I think first, not making assumptions, so asking and not assuming to assure that we can appropriately identify people's risk, thinking about what resources are necessary that providers can tap into and can utilize to help support, and then, again, making sure that all staff are educated, and that goes to reducing stigma, providing the right combination of tools for this population to, again, make them comfortable, make sure that the appropriate testing, et cetera, are done, and that they continue to come back. And our second learning objective, addressing specific barriers to testing and entry into care among migrant and immigrant populations. 
I think there are multiple things. The easy one is language and making sure that we have language not be a major barrier. And so providing resources that we can communicate with individuals in the language that will allow us to most effectively communicate with them. I think trying to make sure we have appropriate services to address their barriers. And so whether it's access, language, transportation, social, legal, or their concerns about legal will be important. I think whenever we can, testing for HIV within other tests, so diabetes or other screening, bundling things so they're less stigmatizing, and again, creating an environment that we can access them again and again and again. So making things comfortable so they will then return to then share their concerns with you with a language that's appropriate in order for us to accurately identify risk and to employ testing and then risk reduction beyond that. And finally, addressing specific barriers to testing and entry into care among adolescents. For adolescents, oftentimes it is actually getting the adolescent into the clinic. The scenario that we presented here was the adolescent happened to to come in, but adolescents tends to be a time where we don't see adolescents very much in the clinical environments. And so when they are there, really trying to make sure we take advantage of them being there employing testing as much as we can and assuring confidentiality so that adolescents can express what they are engaging in, they ask their questions, because only then can we identify what their risk can be and then educate them about risk and risk reduction. Again, underscoring confidentiality, because if we are unable to provide confidential care to youth in a youth-friendly way, we won't be able to, to get youth to come back and to maintain their confidence in terms of their providers. So very key for adolescents. So finding them and when we find them, making sure we test them and then use the opportunities to define risk and educate them about risk, but also then to employ risk reduction as an intervention. Dr. Allison Agu from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. Thank you, Bob. It really has been my pleasure to discuss this topic today. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit. EHIV Review is emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV Review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. 
EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.